read through John's Gospel, we're currently in his epistles in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, but in John's Gospel, he identifies himself the same way with a phrase that he uses five different times, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John's not, not bragging by that. He's not trying to make some kind of exclusive claim, and we know that on the basis of his teaching about love and being loved by God and love of the brethren. Frankly, he's being quite humble by leaving his name out of the conversation. But we learn something, I think, from his use of this phrase, the disciple whom Jesus loved. If you think about John, he has spent roughly three years of his life walking and talking with Jesus. He has watched Jesus through all different facets of ministry. He has been an eyewitness to the powerful teaching of Jesus. He has seen the, the miracles that Jesus has performed, including raising the dead. He has watched Jesus in the face of intense opposition from some of Israel's leaders at that point in time. He saw Jesus after long days of ministry. He watched Jesus when he was betrayed. John 19 tells us he was at the foot of the cross when Jesus was suffering for our sins. So he is watching Jesus through all of this to the point that he sees and is with Jesus after his resurrection from the grave. John saw and heard so much as he walked and talked with Jesus Christ, and that is to me why it is so interesting that one of his great takeaways from the life of Jesus Christ, one of the things that he wants his own life identified by, is Christ's love. He, he, he cannot get over the reality of Jesus loving him and loving him the way he did. He loved his own to the uttermost, nothing compared with Christ's love. John learns the meaning of love from watching Jesus Christ, which he'll tell us about today in this passage. He learned that those who follow Jesus are to imitate that love. Three times, John's gospel recites the command that disciples are to love one another, and the model for that love is the love of Jesus Christ for his own. That, John tells us, that love is to be one of the chief marks that distinguish us from everyone else, that, that display what true biblical Christianity is. For John, there seems to be nothing greater in all of life than to meditate on to revel in, to imitate the love that Jesus has for his own. To be loved by Jesus is his greatest calling to the degree that he wants to be known as the disciple whom Jesus loved. The, the point of significance of his life comes down to being loved by Christ. And that theme really is central in many ways in 1 John and certainly to the passage we're looking at this morning. In all but chapter 1, he makes some reference to God's love, our love for God, or our love imitating Christ for one another. Uh, across chapters two through five, he mentions one of those kinds of love almost four dozen times. And so you understand that genuine Christ-like love is what sets Christianity apart from the world and from every false religion. And so there are points in 1 John when we may feel like John sounds a little like a broken record, 
Like we've heard this before, this call to love one another, but this is his consuming passion. This is what the word of God exhorts us to have as a consuming passion that we would meditate on, as Paul prays in the book of Ephesians, that we would meditate on the love of God in Christ for us and that we would begin to plumb the depths of that so that we would then imitate that. John urgently wants us to consider what it means to be loved by God and therefore what it means to love others. So now if we're being truthful, that's not always easy. There are times we struggle to love others. There are times we are weary. There are times we don't fully understand what it means to love others. There are brothers and sisters who may seem to us to be harder to love than others. There, there may also be a sense of inadequacy. How do, I, how do I love people the way that Jesus loved? And then when we fall short, as we almost always will do, what does that say about me? Here is, here is Jesus on the cross, sacrificially giving his life out of love for me and obedience to the Father. There is this display of love. This is how we know what love is, that Christ died for us, and here am I, driven by my feelings and my selfishness to really not want to go that extra step to serve someone else, to care for them. And so this morning we're going to pick up in 1 John 3, 11. I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, study through the end of the chapter, and look at three lessons that all revolve around this theme of brotherly love. The first two are in verses 11 through 18, and they give us concrete examples. What it's not, what it is. What, what, what biblical love looks like and what it does not. And so two examples to help us understand it. And then the third lesson in verses 19 to 24 really speaks to us when we are falling short. Is, is there assurance? John has made this letter about giving his readers assurance of their faith in Christ, is there assurance for people who profess faith in Christ but who sometimes feel overwhelmed with trying to obey the command to love one another? None of us loves one another perfectly. We're all going to feel some measure of conviction. As we go through verses 11 through 18, we're going to see some weight in this. And so how should I respond when I feel like I'm Drowning in inadequacy when I feel like I'm not meeting needs or serving in the way I should. So let's start. I'm going to start with verses 11 through 15. And this is his first example. 1 John 3, 11 through 15. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. There it is again, from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So here's part one. Hate illustrated. It gives us a description of what the opposite of biblical love looks like. One way to better understand what it is to obey the command to love like Christ is to see it in contrast with the exact opposite. And the Bible uses, John uses the, the first recorded murder in Scripture, that of Cain killing Abel, as the example of that hatred. Cain and Abel were sons of Adam and Eve, Genesis 4 shows them bringing gifts to God as acts of worship. Genesis 4 verse 3 says, In the course of time, Cain 
brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. His, his whole countenance changed. Cain brings an offering from the fruit of the ground, something that had been harvested. His younger brother brings the firstborn of his flock. This was intended to be a teachable moment for Cain. This is the first time that we're seeing this sacrifice process in terms of bringing something in terms of an offering. And this is to be a teachable moment. God is not punishing Cain at this point. Rather, God is teaching Cain about worship that what you have brought is not the best of what you could bring, that I desire the, the animal sacrifice, in fact, the firstborn. And even if all you have is fruit of the ground, then use that, barter that, and, and go purchase an animal sacrifice. But bring whatever you do, bring to worship your best. Don't just settle, but bring your best. And the Lord then says to Cain, why are you angry? If you do the right thing, it will go well with you. But if you respond with bitterness, then sin will consume you and you will make things worse. And sadly, we know that's exactly what happened. That Cain, while the two brothers were out in the field, killed Abel. And then when he is confronted by God, tries to shift responsibility, tries to pretend that he has no knowledge of this or is not his brother's keeper in some way. And yet the language that John uses here when he uses the, the Greek word for murder really is slaughter. Cain brutally kills his own brother over this sense of indignation. And, and that's really the insight, I think, for you and I is what follows. When John says, why? Why did Cain do this? Why did Cain murder Abel? And he says, because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. And then he goes on sort of a, a brief excursus in verse 13 about persecution, about the world's attitude towards believers and the fact that the world hates followers of Jesus Christ. And I think this is really telling for us in understanding the world's attitude toward Christians, towards those who follow Jesus Christ and helps us to understand persecution. Here is God's word answering the why question of why the world hates Christians. And the primary reason that unbelievers hate followers of Jesus Christ is ultimately spiritual. Not only does darkness hate light, but darkness hates the conviction that comes from light. They hate the sense of, we might call it in our culture, morality, but they hate the sense of what we understand to be righteousness that comes from those who believe in Jesus Christ. And they want that conviction to stop. And that's ultimately what Cain does with Abel. To the unrighteous, righteousness is like this nagging, annoying pain, and they want it to go away. There's no indication in Genesis that Abel was trying to shame his brother, that Abel was somehow saying, see, I, I did right and you did wrong. The conviction, rather, is coming from God. Cain experienced conviction from God through Abel and decided that the way to address it was to crush Abel, was to stop the conviction by stopping the instrument. First John has already said that believers 
are to abide in Christ and practice righteousness. You saw this last week. In fact, verse 11 flows right out of the uh, verse 10. This whole section flows right out of verse 10. Verse 10 said, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So think about this in light of what we know about Cain and Abel and what we're seeing here and John's trying to tell us about the world's attitude toward believers. If you find yourself at home with and at ease with unbelievers, and and more importantly, if unbelievers find themselves at home with and at ease around you and are never challenged about your life or, or anything that you do differently or any way that you live or speak differently, then you need to pause at that point and ask if you are practicing righteousness. Because the warning of scripture here is that the abiding in Christ, marked by the practice of righteousness, will inevitably stir up some measure of hostility amongst those who are unrighteous. If unbelievers who are regularly in your life are are never challenged by the righteous things you do, by the ethics by which you live, by the decisions that you make, by the words you speak, by the grace you show, or by anything else that reflects the holiness of your Savior, then that's a problem. That should raise some some question in your mind. Now, I'm not suggesting, and nor is John, that we should go out and try our best to provoke unbelievers by condemning them. In fact, I, I think what he describes here is quite the opposite. We don't see Abel provoking Cain. What what we see happening is that the world world should experience experience through us kindness and patience and joy and and grace and all of the the, the fruit of the Spirit. But the point here is that by living out a Christ-like life and living out the righteousness of your Savior, the Holy Spirit will bring about conviction as he did to Cain, will bring about conviction through your life to say, you need a savior. You are a sinner who is in need of a savior. Theologian Karen Jobes wrote this, no matter how nice Christians may be to others, those of the world will feel implicitly accused and condemned by the Christian's faith in a savior who died for sin because the world does not want to believe in sin. To the unbelieving world, morality can appropriately be based on education to correct ignorance and on some sense of social fairness, but not on the existence of a holy God who is entitled to define right from wrong and expect us to live by it. Cain's reaction to Abel, his hatred of Abel, is a prototype of what hate looks like. It is is stubborn, it is unrepenting, It is jealous, it is isolating, do this my way, it's angry, it's blame shifting, it it demands acceptance, and when approval is not given, the response is bitterness, that you are not approving. And that's where our, our living out the righteousness of Christ should be worked by the Holy Spirit through us to bring conviction to those who are living in unrighteousness. This is all, this warning here tracks precisely with what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said that anger with one's brother is the equivalent, spiritual equivalent of murder. If you, if you are often angry with 
Brothers and sisters, if you are regularly disengaging from them because they bother you, because you disagree with them, and so you, you are regularly finding yourself pulling back from other believers and, and not wanting to be in community with them, then this is your warning. A, a lack of love is evidence of spiritual death. If the present state of your heart is against brothers and sisters, then really this is urging you to repent. I would say to you that even, even when you get to verse 15 and it uses the word murderer and says no murderer abides in eternal life, you, you've got to constantly keep in mind what John has already told us in the same context back in chapter 1, that if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so there is hope for any who will repent and who will turn to him and ask for forgiveness. That's hate illustrated. Let's read on. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If Cain exemplified hatred, then Jesus is the obvious example of what love looks like. It is the sort of defining characteristic of love. Christianity is often associated with love. Even much of the world knows that Christians are supposed to love. They, they don't necessarily agree with that or believe that because the, the problem becomes people's definition of love. That, that's where the, the, the culture and even we can get misguided in understanding what is this love. And so in the culture, its meaning is often watered down to a, a strong feeling, usually connected with some measure of, of sexual desire. That's love in terms of a worldly perspective. That's why God's word is careful here to say, this is love. By this, we know love. And what he gives then as the the, the picture in the dictionary next to love to say, here is love, is a picture of Jesus Christ laying down his life at the cross for you and I. It is Jesus Christ willingly walking toward the agony of the cross, toward experiencing the wrath of his Father so that he might stand in our place and receive what we deserve for our sin. He says that is love. A little over a century ago, Scottish theologian named James Denny wrote a book on the death of Christ, and in it he gave an illustration trying to explain this, and he said, imagine your sunny day, you're sitting at the end of a pier, enjoying the day, and someone comes running down that pier proclaiming, I am going to show you I love you, I want to prove my love to you, and they, they run the pier, and they run off the pier, and they run into the water and disappear and drown. And Denny writes, I would find that quite unintelligible. Even if I needed love, there would be no rational connection to that act. He said he loved me and then he drowned himself. What's the sense in that? But then he says, obviously, if we think about this the other way, suppose I fell off the pier and I couldn't swim and I'm drowning in the water and this person comes down and says, I love you. I'm going to rescue you and risks their own life to come in the water and save me. He said, that, that I understand. I, 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 can, I can see the, the sacrifice that person takes by putting their own life in peril for mine. Jesus did not simply risk his own life. He willingly laid down his life. He gave it to be crucified at the cross for sinners so that I would be saved from God's wrath and from eternal suffering. And that, John wrote, is the example. By this we know love. Christ laid down his life for us. But then he has to add, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. That's the love of Christ as modeled for believers 
And that is what we are called to as those who follow after Jesus Christ. It is sacrifice to the highest degree. It is the willingness to, to even lay down my life for your good. And that's the brotherly love we are called to. Now, the truth of the matter is, most of us will not encounter that kind of circumstance where we are actually called to surrender our life for the life of someone else. Those of you who serve in the military may, may face that more profoundly than, than, than the rest of us, but for the most part, it, it's not a concept that is close in our minds. The idea of giving one's life in another's place is a distant thought. And so John is, is very kind to us in that he, he reels it in a lot closer to home for us to understand what he's talking about in verses 17 and 18. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Verse 16 is broad, lays down his life for his brothers, plural, true statement, but, but, but sort of broad in scope. Verse 17 comes right down to a brother or sister, singular. We are now, we are now face to face with the need. We are now face to face with one who is undergoing some kind of hardship. I, I can see it. And so he says the first element in understanding what brotherly love is, is that you, you know there's need. You can see it right in front of you that this brother or sister before you is suffering in some way. And then he says the second element in verse 17 is, I see it and I have opportunity to help. I have something that I can do in this situation. And in this case, what he describes is I have the goods, I have possessions I can use to help this one who's in need. So two aspects to this love of brethren. Do I see a brother or sister who is in need? Two, do I have some capacity to respond to that need? That, that's where I'm called to act then, where I'm called to be even sacrificial to help in that case. Now, John's example has to do primarily with possessions and, and, and financial need, but let me open this up a little bit. Do I see a brother or sister who is grieving and I can comfort, I can come alongside and sit with them and, and, and just be there for them? Do I see a brother or sister who is confused or troubled and I can... I can perhaps bring some wisdom, or at minimum, I can say, let me pray with you. Let me pray for you that God would give you wisdom and, and courage in this situation and faith. Do I see a brother or sister stumbling in sin? And I can, I can warn them. I can exhort them. I can go to them and speak to them and urge them back to the path of righteousness. Do I see a brother or sister who is simply overwhelmed with a task and I can help. We can go on and on, but the summary in verse 18 is really what says it, which is, don't just talk love. Don't just profess love. Do love. You see the need, you have some capacity, step toward the need with whatever capacity you have to help and, and serve. 
Love that imitates Jesus is sacrificial. It sees the need, it gauges my capacity to help, and it, it acts on that if I have some ability to do something. I don't just walk by. I don't just hope someone else fills the void. I don't just pray, Lord, help, have, have somebody else come and because and, and, I, I just don't have time for this need right now. Let, let somebody else do this. Because he says, if I see it, and I know I have capacity, to not respond at this point is to close my heart toward that person. And that is not a demonstration of God's love in me. If I see a fellow believer in need and I'm able to come alongside and I can help and I turn away and I am calloused toward them, that is the kind of hard-heartedness that is not reflective of God's love that I claim has transformed me and is changing me. Within the community of believers, we, we all should be engaged in mutual acts of of service to one another, of caring for one another, of coming alongside one another, of giving and receiving help. That's the test of walking with God he's describing here. John Stott summarizes it this way. Hatred characterizes the world, whose prototype is Cain. It originates in the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Love characterizes the church, whose prototype is Christ. It originates in God, issues in self-sacrifice, and is evidence of eternal life. All right, you're with me this far. You've probably experienced some level of conviction. There's some sense here of, I've, I've seen and I've walked away, or I've seen and I, I just didn't do what I, I could have done. Or, or it's simply, Doug, I... I I see a need here, and I see a need there, and then there's one over here, and, and sometimes it's just a little overwhelming, and am I supposed to come and meet every one of those needs? I just don't know what to do with all of this, and so it feels sort of daunting. Well, Jesus himself said in Mark 14, 7, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. That's, that's not an excuse to shirk our responsibility, but it's just the reality that we can also become quickly overwhelmed by seeing needs and, and trying to discern how to, how to help and whether we can help and sometimes feeling utterly unable to obey. As I said earlier, the, the model here is Jesus, the perfect son of God, taking my sin on himself and dying in my place, and then there's me not providing help in every situation where I see need. So how do I reconcile this? Does, does this mean that I'm not a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, Here's, here's what John addresses next. Verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure, you could say calm your heart, reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Ever of a mind, John, ever of a mind to want to assure his readers and not leave them confused and struggling and overwhelmed in guilt, John wants to give them assurance and he plants this assurance firmly in truth. He says, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. He's just said, here's the connection from verse 18 to 19, that we are to love in deed and in truth and by this we shall know that we are of the truth. Now, just a quick aside, remember again the setting behind 1 John, that part of what's going on here is that his readers are in particular being attacked by false teaching. 
There are false teachers who were amongst them, who are now have left them, but who are now actively deceiving them, trying to deceive John's readers by claiming new truth about Jesus. Over and over again, we've seen that phrase, you know this from the beginning. This whole passage back in verse 11 started with that from the beginning part. And we've said this before, John is using that to say, when you first were saved, when, when the gospel came to you, when, when it was proclaimed to you, when you believed it, and it was simple. Jesus died for your sins, he rose again, put your faith and trust in him, and follow him. In faith, obey him. And so he's, he's constantly taken them back and said, this is what you know from the beginning, and now they're hearing things from these false teachers who claim this new angle on truth, and it doesn't sound the same, and it seems to justify sin, and it doesn't talk about love of the brethren. And that's why John ultimately anchors all of this in verse 19 when he says, you can know that you are of the truth. And so in verse 19, he's pointing back to verse 18, saying, loving one another sacrificially, in deeds and in truth will give you assurance that you are of the truth. Sounds sort of circular, but it's simple. He's saying, if you want assurance that you are walking in the truth, then do the truth. And, and, and doing the truth is loving one another. As you, as you do what you're able to do, as you are a faithful steward of what God has provided for you and you are using it to serve others, you will receive assurance of your belief in his truth. In other words, as you live by the truth, you are giving evidence of believing the truth. In this case, the, the evidence is clearly seen in loving the brethren. The opposite then is also true. I said it before, but if you, if you are inclined to pull back from other believers if you are not wanting to show sacrificial care for other believers, for brothers and sisters, if you are, are, are withdrawing from them, you are not walking in the truth and have reason to lack confidence in your profession of faith. That's something to, to pause and say, why, why am I going this direction as opposed to walking toward the, the body? In, in either case, though, here's, here's what he's saying. In either case, be assured, God knows. God knows your heart. Even, even when your own heart is struggling and, and struggling with assurance, the God who saved you is omniscient and he knows. Before one of its more recent revisions, the New Living Translation, I always quote the New Living Translation, but I'm gonna give you verses 19 and 20 because I think it's helpful. It is by our actions that we know we are living in the truth, so we will be confident when we stand before the Lord, even if our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. John's point is this. If you have come to believe in the love of God through Jesus Christ, which essentially is responding to the gospel, you believe that God has shown his love to you by sending his son, and you are trusting in Jesus Christ. And now your eyes are open to needs around you, and you are actively beginning to measure your ability to help in those needs, and then you are acting where you are able and you are serving, then be assured that God knows your heart even better than you do. God sees what is going on in your heart and he sees your desire to serve. And so he's not trying to confuse you. He's not trying to overwhelm you. He's not trying to bind you in some state of, of guilt because all you can see are this abundance of unmet needs and you're not running around meeting every single one of them. If you are faithfully seeking to abide in Christ by loving his people, then take heart, God 
knows that. And John wants us to take assurance from that. He sees your faithfulness. I'll put it on a broader sense. God does not expect Grace Bible Church to single-handedly end all poverty and hunger in Lorton, but he has called us to prioritize first caring for this flock and making sure that within the body that, that we are caring for one another and then work outward from there with the, with the resources that he's given us, that he's stewarded to us. Now take that opportunity to serve others and, and to move out from here and care for them and be good stewards. God is a perfect and omniscient judge. Our hearts are unreliable. They sometimes condemn us when they shouldn't, and they sometimes commend us when, when they shouldn't. But John wants us to know that God is a true and accurate examiner of our faithfulness. Verse 21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And stop there. There's a temptation based on all that we just saw in, in 19 and 20 to then sort of dismiss the heart. And, and, and when I say the heart, I'm talking about the inner man, the conscience, the, the nagging sense of conviction, the, the inner working that sort of compels us and our desires that, that gets us thinking and being introspective and, and all of that. Verse 21 is making it clear that God's omniscience, the fact that he knows everything, and this assurance that he does, do not make our hearts irrelevant or say that they are always wrong. Because in verse 21, he says, if our heart does not condemn us. So he's allowing here that there may be an appropriate sense of conviction from your heart. Your heart may convict you. There may be a sense of, of guilt about something that is true and right. We, when, when somebody comes to us and says, I just feel really guilty, I feel really bad, the worst thing we can do is short circuit that by saying, you shouldn't, no, you, don't. you shouldn't feel bad at all. Well, no, back up and say, why? What, what, are, you, what are you feeling that guilt about? What, what, what's gone on? Because the, the heart can be used by God to bring an appropriate level of conviction to the conscience. And so there, there's, there's, with that sense of when he speaks here of the heart condemning, there is some appropriate questioning we should be doing. Am I, am I actually trying to serve others? Am I um, being a good steward of the resources God has given? Am I being, trying to be faithful? Uh, I, I love Psalm 139, 23 and 24. It, I, I think it's always helpful to our praying. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Where there is some inner sense of conviction, we should be humbly praying along those lines. God, help me here. I, I feel like I'm doing something wrong or, or thinking wrongly or speaking wrongly. Help me to see this. Search my heart and, and, and convict me where I need to. And, where I, and, and, and then where I failed, where it does become clear I failed, then repent. This goes back to 1 John 1, 9. If, if, I, if I do come across it, I don't need to wallow and, and stay stuck there. I now have the opportunity to confess my sin and to know the forgiveness of the God who loves me. And, and, and perhaps I need to go be reconciled with someone. But, but know this, God is not trying to keep you in some suspended state of uncertainty where you just, I don't, I, I feel like I'm not doing enough and I feel terrible and I, I'm, I just can't do anything. No, that, that's not... If you are trying to be a faithful steward and serve the brethren when you see needs, then 
keep in mind some of the other options that that, that nagging sense could be. You might be dealing with a hypersensitive conscience, um, one that just is overly reactive to every situation. You might be dealing with guilt that comes from some unbiblical standard. Um, that you've set for yourself that God's word doesn't. You may have perfectionistic tendencies and, and I, I cannot possibly be pleasing to God until I've helped 16 people over the course of the next three days or whatever it is because I, I got to do this and I got to do it to completion. Well, there, there's a part there where we're holding ourselves to a standard that, that God doesn't say. And so in that case, you need to believe and embrace God's truth and he says, approach in confidence. He's talking about prayer. There, there's no place that, that I, I think, at least for me, becomes more difficult when I am feeling convicted about my own sin than prayer, because that's the point where it's like, he doesn't want me. He, I, I know he doesn't want to hear me again, and so I, I, I withdraw from that. And he's saying, approach with confidence. It is Satan who wants to keep God's people in a state of self-doubt, where all we can picture is God 24-7 looking down going, Doug, 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 Doug. Just shaking his head in disappointment. Just, just constant disappointment and saying, just give up, you're wrong again. It's not what John's describing here. John says, God knows your hearts and he knows your motives. So if you're sinning, confess it and enjoy his forgiveness and then draw near to him in confidence. And if you're not sinning, ask him to help you draw near in confidence. Whatever it is, his call is press in toward him. Don't stand at a distance. Come to your Lord. Verse 23. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. One of the reasons I love John as a writer is his simplicity. Here's a man who's walked and talked with Jesus, but who in many ways reflects his fisherman past as just being a simple man who puts things in some of the simplest terms. John has experienced the gracious love of Jesus Christ and now he wants his readers to know that. For all of the, the books in the world, all of the theology books and Christian living books, John has this sweet knack for saying, listen, the path to abiding with God was, is, and remains the same. Hasn't changed, hasn't been revised, and it is simply this. Respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ with faith. That's what he means when he says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying this, this is simple. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he died on the cross, and that you are a sinner in need of forgiveness? Then believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, then continue in faith and walk in obedience. That's really what he's saying. This is the, his commandment. We believe and we love one another as he commanded us. So for every, every dozen books of Christian living that you read, John has this wonderful way of saying, can I tell you, child of God, are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Walk by faith and believe what he says and obey him and strive to obey his commandments just 
Just do it. And so in this case, he says, he, he told you to love God and love neighbor. Love God and love neighbor. Look for needs and serve where you can. The Greek word for abide shows up more than 30 times in John's gospel, more than 25 times in these three letters, first, second, and third John. And we'll see it again in chapter four a few times. And I think each time John uses it, he wants to pull back the curtain of mystery. What does it mean to abide in Christ? And, and, and John is kind enough to pull back that curtain and to say, abiding is trusting in Christ and doing what he says. It's obeying his commands like loving one another. And how do you do that? You do that by yielding to the power of his spirit. His emphasis here at the very end, and he'll talk a little bit more about this, but is by, by this we know, he started all of this off with, we know, we know, we know, by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. If you have been born again by the spirit of God, then the spirit of God is at work in you. And you have, you have watched the spirit of God grow in you patience that you used to not have. It ain't perfect yet, but you've seen it grow. You've seen him grow a love in you for others that you, you didn't have. You've seen him give you a kindness and a humility and, and, and a joy that you previously didn't have. That's the spirit of God dwelling in you and that's his way of assuring you, I am growing you. Obey, step by faith and continue to obey because the God who wants to assure us that we are his also empowers us to be obedient, to walk in his truth. So do that. And if you are, if you are coming away from this this morning, I'm coming to a close here and, and, and you are feeling some sense of weight or guilt or conviction, then he would say to you, confess your sins and he is faithful and just to forgive them and to cleanse you. And so I'm gonna, as we go to prayer, I'm gonna be quiet for the first moment or so, just some time for us and God. Uh, if, if there are areas that you want to confess before God uh, and, and if there's not, and, and God's not showing you areas, then spend that time just praising him because he's calling you to draw near to him and pray that he would help you to do that. So let's just quietly pray for a moment. great God, we thank you for mercy. We thank you that you set your love on your people, those here who are trusting in Jesus Christ. We stand with John as disciples, as followers, who the greatest thing about our lives is we have been loved. We are loved by Jesus Christ. That is a magnificent truth. I pray, Father, if there's anyone here this morning or listening this morning who is struggling with that very truth, who does not know Jesus Christ or has experienced his love, I pray that today would be the day when your spirit would bring them to life, would give them new birth so that they would see Jesus as the Savior, as the one who, who rescues sinners and as the one who gave himself on the cross and rose again to eternal life, and that by believing in him, there is life. Father, for all here who are trusting, would you help us to walk by faith? Lord, your word says, as we've read, 
God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. What a statement that is. If we were to, if we were to put any other name in there, that would be troubling if not frightening to think this person knows everything about me, knows my heart, knows my thoughts, knows my desires. Lord, that is an overwhelming thought for us to consider that you know everything about us down to the the thoughts and intents of our hearts. And you say, trust me, believe in my son, come by faith and draw near in confidence. Come to me. Lord, it, it's remarkable to us. If we, if we were to know one another's deepest thoughts, we might be appalled. But you, God, you have taken the, the penalty of our sin of those thoughts, have poured out your wrath upon it through Jesus so that you may now say to your children, come to me, draw near to me in confidence. Thank you for that. Thank you for who we are in Christ. Thank you for your spirit indwelling your people and enabling us to, to walk by faith in obedience to you. Thank you for the joys of forgiveness. All these things we pray in the great name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.